For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching on Ephesians chapter 1, guest speaker Pastor Miles DeBenedictus reminds us that our true identity is found in Christ. Let's join Pastor Miles with the message entitled, Who You Are. It's a scary thing to hear that I'm like a favorite teacher (laughs) at the Bible College. If that's the case, we should be concerned about the Bible College. I was blessed when I was driving up here to see In-N-Out up here. <laughs> you know, for years, th- there was kind of a name for our church where I live. I live in North County, San Diego, in a town called Escondido, and we had a name for our church. People called us in the community the In-N-Out Church, <laughs> and it's actually not a good thing because In-N-Out had wanted to build a facility in our town and the city wouldn't let them put their sign up next to the freeway. And so the construction company that was building this facility, they went out of business and we bought the facility. And so we put our sanctuary right where the In-N-Out was supposed to be. And everybody in town was, they were mad at us. They would call us the In-N-Out Church. And it's not our fault, it's the city, not us. We didn't do it, but the In-N-Out Church, so. I'm blessed to be able to be here with you guys today. About six or seven weeks ago, I got an email from your pastor, Pastor Ross, uh, inviting me to come up and uh, just absolutely blessed to receive that invite. When I got that email, I I started doing two things. First thing, I started plotting. You see, I, I saw that I'd be coming up on Valentine's Day, flying up on the 14th to teach here, and I thought, you know... I got an idea. Maybe I'll come up on the 13th and I'll surprise my wife. We'll fly up together. And so I didn't tell her. I had it all planned out, surprise. And so this last Friday afternoon, she was driving home from work. My wife's a nurse and she called me and she knew that we were doing something. She knew that I was going to be flying up here Saturday and she thought we were going out to dinner for Valentine's Day. And I said, well, you're going to need to pack a bag for a couple days because we're flying up to San Francisco. Uh, My wife's sister lives in Half Moon Bay and so we flew up and we stayed Friday night in Half Moon Bay and spent Saturday with uh, my sister-in-law there and then drove up here to Santa Rosa. When I told my mom about a month ago that I would be teaching at Calvary Chapel Santa Rosa, my mom grew up in the East Bay. She grew up in Vallejo and uh, she said, she said, Santa Rosa's like my favorite place in the world. And then I told my sister-in-law that I'm going to be teaching at a church in Santa Rosa. And she said, Santa Rosa is like my favorite place in the world. So you guys apparently live in the best place. That's awesome. My wife and I, we've been married uh, going on nine years this year. We have four small kids. Ethan is six, and he is our thinker. And then Addison, she is five, and she's our artist. Evangeline is three, and we call her our antagonist. (laughs) She's our personality. And then Elliot, he's 18 months old, and he is our athlete. He runs around kicking a soccer ball constantly. Anytime, if he sees someone with a ball 100 feet away, he starts screaming, ball! It's like his favorite thing in the world. So I shared that I started doing two things, plotting. The second thing was stalking. I've been stalking you and your pastor online. 
Don't worry. I've just been listening to your pastor's teachings on your podcast online, and uh, you've got a great pastor, great teacher. I've never had the privilege of meeting him in person, but I've been listening to his teaching, and he is a great Bible teacher. You're blessed as a church. Amen. Amen. And he's a funny guy, too. I, I hear all you laughing. Like, it's like, he's doing a good job. But we need more. We need more pastors and more churches like this church. It, it is a blessing to see what God is doing. And I have the privilege of not only being the pastor of a church in San Diego, a church that has actually been around for 35 years. I became the lead pastor of it seven years ago. Um, it's Calvary Chapel of Escondido, but uh, we changed the name to Cross Connection Church. And our goal is to bring people into connection with God through the cross of Christ. And God is doing that. So I have the privilege of being able to serve as the pastor of Cross Connection Church and also to teach at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta. I've also taught at the Bible Colleges in Germany and in the Philippines and in Costa Mesa. So that's been a, a huge blessing. And then I also sit as uh, one of the co-founders and directors of a ministry called the Calvary Church Planting Network. A good friend of mine who actually used to pastor the church in Mill Valley, Calvary Chapel Mill Valley, Daniel Fusco and I, we uh, helped kind of develop that. He now pastors in southern Washington. And um, so we are currently seeing many, many men raised up into ministry to go and plant churches like this throughout our state and the nation and the world. And it is such a blessing to see what God is doing here in the great state of California. I, I personally, I'm a little biased. I think California is the best state in the nation. So I'm assuming that many of you would agree, although some of you are probably from other places and we'll give you grace, but <laughs> California. And as you probably know, our state is an influential state. It has been said, so goes California, so goes the nation. And in reality, things that happen here have reverberations throughout the whole world. And so because of the tech industry that's here in the northern part of the state and the entertainment industry in the southern part of the state, you know, there are some, some phenomenal things that begin here and begin to move out. So what happens in California has reverberations. And that is true uh, concerning the work that God began to do 50 years ago now through the Calvary Chapel movement, and that's continuing to, you know, started in Southern California, has moved throughout the state, throughout the world. God's doing some great things. So through the Calvary Church Planting Network, it's neat to see that that is continuing to take place, continuing to happen. But the ripples of what happens in this state affect other parts of the world, which is why I am so happy to see that you all here in the Bay Area have been really fighting against plastic bags. Now, you are doing your part to get rid of them. We have not experienced this yet in Southern California. In fact, my wife and I were introduced to this for the very first time. We flew into San Francisco airport and we realized, as you always do when you travel somewhere, we forgot some things, so we went to Target, you know? And we pull into Target and we get an armload of stuff. We walk up with all this stuff and set it down and they check it out. And the guy that's doing the cashier thing, he says, would you like a bag? And I said, well, of course I'd like a bag. <laughs> And he, he pulls out this paper bag, and my wife goes, oh, paper bags. You see, we don't see paper bags where we live down in San Diego. I haven't seen paper bags for a long time. And so she said, oh, wow, a paper bag. And he goes, they're all paper. <laughs> okay, it was 11 o'clock at night. I'm going to give him grace. He wasn't too happy. They're all paper. You don't have any plastic bags? No, they're against the law. <laughs> we didn't realize we were felons. <laughs> In Southern California, I guess, you know, the last I remember, and you might remember this as well, paper bags were bad, Amen. right? Weren't they because we were like losing trees 
and there was acid rain, and there was a hole in the ozone, and so we switched to plastic bags, and now there's no acid rain, and there's no hole in the ozone. So I thought that cleared the whole thing up, and now I'm being told that no, plastic bags are bad, so um, out with the plastic, in with the paper again, and then we'll probably have a hole in the ozone in about 30 years again, and we'll have to deal with that then, and more plastic. So we'll just go through this. Oh, they charged me a quarter for a paper bag. <laughs> I felt like I was in Germany again. <laughs> My goodness. This is a, a special day for me, uh, not just being able to come and teach here, but I, I realized it just occurred to me last night as I was looking back over some notes that I had prepared, and I realized, well, it's Valentine's Day yesterday, second Sunday in February. This is actually the 16th year, the anniversary of the 16th 16th anniversary that I began teaching the Bible. I started teaching the Bible on February 14th, 1999 as a 19-year-old uh, in the junior high ministry at Calvary Chapel Escondido. I grew up at the church that I now pastor. And uh, so I started as a youth pastor there teaching the junior hires. And I, I opened up my laptop last night and lo and behold, I still have the notes from Galatians chapter one that I taught 16 years ago. And I looked through them, five pages of notes. And, and I thought to myself, as I read through these notes, I thought, God, truly you are gracious <laughs> because they were terrible. <laughs> you know, God's word does not return void and his word was good, but the words in between his word, my notes, I thought, wow. And God is truly gracious. And one of the proofs of God's grace is that one of the kids that was a part of that junior high ministry is now our junior high pastor at our church. So really blessed to see the hand of the Lord in all of that. He is truly a good God. And, you know, thinking back, it, it started me thinking last night over the last 16 years. A lot has changed in my life. A lot has changed in the church that I'm a part of. A lot has changed in just the world that we look at. I mean, so much has changed. If you think back the last 16 years, that was prior to 9-11, 2001. You know, I mean, so much has transformed and changed. And the reality is, is that life is constantly changing. That's one of the issues of life. It changes constantly. The only things that don't change are rocks and dead things. So anything that's alive, it, it changes. It's dynamic. It's moving along. And so when we look at the world around us, it is constantly in flux. It's moving around. It's not static. And, and really, if you go back beyond 16 years, but you go back thousands of years, you look back over the last 2,500 years of history, and there's some phenomenal change that has taken place during that time, especially the way that we, human beings, view the world, the way that we understand reality, the things that we know, has changed quite a bit over the last 2,500 years. And you know, if you study anthropology or you study philosophy or you study sociology and you look at history over the last 2,500 years, you know that they describe these changes or these different durations of times as philosophical epics that there are three major philosophical epics throughout the last 2,500 years of history, really since the beginning of, of human cognition or the time that we began to think and talk and write when, when we started to chart histories until about the 1650s, until the 17th century, they call that whole period of time the pre-modern era, pre-modern. And then, you know, from the 14th century to the 16th century, we had a rapid transformation, especially in the West and Western Europe, called the Renaissance. And as a result of the Renaissance, we moved from being pre-modern, kind of demeaning a little if you think about it, pre-modern to modern. 
We moved into the modern era from uh, about that time, the 1650s, the 17th century on until the beginning of the 20th century. They called it the modern era. And really, the dominating thing of the modern era was something called the Industrial Revolution. It came on the heels of the Renaissance. And that moved us from pre-modern to modern and through the Industrial Revolution. Then the 20th century came. And now, since the beginning of the 20th century, we've moved away from a time where we refer to it as a modern era to a postmodern era. How many of you have heard the term postmodern before? Many of you. Really, the dominating feature of the postmodern era has been not the Industrial Revolution, but the tech revolution. The tech revolution has transformed all of our lives in a big way, especially here in California. We see it in a huge way here, and it continues. I mean, here this morning, they're saying, get the app on your phone to know what's going on at the church on your iOS device, you know? So, I mean, we're living in a different time. And there are some people in the philosophical circles who are saying that we've moved beyond postmodern, and so the best they could come up with was post-postmodern. So, <laughs> we are post-postmodern. And yet, when you look at all of these shifts, these massive transformations that have taken place, and really this just describes the way that we understand reality, we understand what's going on in the world, our purpose in it. As you look at all of this, there is a common underlying foundational precept that comes from about 2,500 years ago. This is especially here in the West, and it comes from the Greek culture. You see, among the Greeks in about 5600 BC, 25, 2600 years ago, among the Greeks, there were seven Greek sages, these great Stoic philosophers, these thinkers, and they came up with, at that time, about 147 different sayings that they called the maxims for life. And these were the truth sayings that the Greeks kind of ordered the way that they viewed the world, and there. Among the Greeks, there was one primary Greek maxim, one of the most important ones, the celebrated maxim among them. There, there was a Greek traveler, a Greek geographer in the second century AD, about 1800 years ago, and he traveled around the world of his day, and he actually wrote like the first triple A guide for travelers in his day. His name was Pausinius, and he wrote the Traveler's Guide for Greece. And in it, he describes how if you go to the Greek city of Delphi, then there at the, the temple of Apollo, which was the most dominating feature of the city, as you came into the temple of Apollo there in the forecourt, the entryway inscribed was the first celebrated maxim of the Greeks. And it was the Greek words, gnothai seautan. Translated for us, they mean know thyself. Know thyself. And if you consider it, over the last 2,500 years, those foundational words have been some of the words that have stirred a lot of the things that have transformed our way of thinking and the world in which we live. Now, interestingly enough, at the time when those words were coined by these seven sages of Greece, they were originally meant to induce humility. They were originally meant to induce humility. The thought was... If you or I would sit down and really think about who we are, we would take time to reflect on ourselves, we would come to realize that we have a lot of limitations and weaknesses and lacking. And as a result of understanding our limitations, knowing our weaknesses, we would do a better job of interacting with other people. We would be more humble in our way of interacting. Interesting, the Apostle Paul, who wrote you know, much of the New Testament, 
in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, he kind of hits on the same sort of theme, if you will, where he writes this, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, I'm sure there's plenty of guys in here today who probably still have some back pain from a time in your life where you thought yourself to be something when in reality you were nothing. You thought yourself to be a little bit stronger than maybe you actually were. Anybody identify with that? I can. So we understand that that's, it's, you know, it's good to know your limitations and your lack. And so Paul was kind of hitting on that same sort of theme. When you have an adequate understanding of who you are, your limitations, your lack, your shortcomings, then you can more humbly interact with other people. And one of the other things that the Greeks were very much interested in was taking those things and identifying your shortcomings and then saying, let's work on that. Let's strengthen that. Let's build up on that. So that Socrates, Socrates, that's how his name is spelled. <laughs> Socrates in the fifth century BC, he was known for many sayings, but one of them was, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Now, as you fast forward from 2,500 years ago till now, when gnothai seautan, know thyself, was meant to induce humility to the 21st century Californian mindset, Know thyself does not have the same bent anymore, does it? You know, I, I think the idea for 21st century Westerners, especially here in the state of California, the idea of know thyself can be best expressed, the understanding of what it really means to us in our day. It is best grasped through the hit song from Disney Pixar's Frozen, Let It Go. <laughs> now, if you don't know this song, you're blessed. But I would be surprised that you could live in this day and not know this song. Now, as I said earlier, I have four small kids and two Disney princesses, two daughters, Addison and Evangeline. A few weeks ago, I was driving my kids to school, and we have a pretty long drive to school, and I dropped our son off, and then I'm driving our daughters to school. And, and I thought it would be fun to, you know, on Spotify, put on... Frozen's Let It Go, and my daughters in the backseat, they sang at the top of their lungs, Let It Go. Now, they don't get all the words right, right. you know. Kids make up words. They think they hear something. It's great. Um, my wife was driving down the street a few weeks ago, and there's this song playing on the radio, and my son goes, Mom, what's a Starbucks lover? If you've ever listened to Taylor Swift, you know she has a song out right now called Blank Space, and one of the lines says, a long list of ex-lovers, but it sounds like Starbucks lovers, and my son goes, what's a Starbucks lover? So they hear what they want to hear. But in that song, there is a line that says this. Disney's frozen, let it go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Now, it may not be the best thing. In fact, many would make the argument it's not to have five and three-year-olds listening to this song and planting that in their mind. You can challenge me on that later. Right? It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. In our day, we hear people say, I gotta figure out who I am. I'm gonna have some time of 
self-reflection. I've got to know myself. You know, the Greeks, they said it 2,500 years ago. They were right. I've got to know myself. And then as they work through this, they come out with other sayings. I can do anything that I put my mind to. I've got to live my life on my own terms. I've just got to be me. Nothing can hold me back. I'm free. I've got to look out for me because nobody else is going to look out for me. I can't depend on anyone else but myself. And those are the typical outcomes of self-realization, self-discovery of the modern Western, or maybe we should say postmodern Western mind. We're living in a society and at a time when people want to figure things out for their own and choose for themselves their own destiny, their own reality. Life is like a choose-your-own-adventure book. And that's the world that we live in. And so you will meet, as I do in Southern California, you will meet here in the Bay Area, in Northern California, people who, as you share with them or express to them your worldview, your understanding of reality, they'll say, I'm glad you have that. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And there's no real basis upon which we can say something is objectively right or wrong or objectively true or false in the day in which we live. Worldviews are important. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a philosophy. And in our day, there are a multiplicity of them. And apparently, they're all supposed to coexist perfectly, like the bumper sticker says. Everything needs to be perfectly knit together. We should all just, can't, in the words of the 20th century philosopher, uh, Rodney King, can't we all just get along? As Los Angeles was blowing up. Can't we all just get along? But... Worldviews, philosophies, they're very important. And any worldview that is worth its weight, any worldview that can hold water, needs to answer adequately, sufficiently, at least four important questions. I call these four questions the iPod questions. Not because of the iPod music player, but because of the first letters of each one of these. The iPod questions. They're the questions of identity and purpose and origin and destiny. Identity, who am I? Purpose, why am I here? Origin, where did I come from? And destiny, where am I going? The postmodern answers, the modern answers to these questions are what most people are driven by. They come from a naturalistic view of the world that everything evolved over billions of years through random chance and mutation to bring us to where we are at today. And if you hold that view, if you hold that position, then you are among the moderns or the postmoderns or the post-postmoderns. And you look at anyone who holds a worldview that comes from this book as pre-modern. They probably still think the earth is flat. Do they even use technology? Do they even know how to turn on a light switch? You know, these are the kind, truly, this is the way that some people think of people who believe the things that are written in this book, in the scriptures. But you have to adequately answer these questions of identity and purpose and origin and destiny. And, and I believe, as, I, as I've thought long about these things, as I've considered them, that the Bible gives the only co compelling and coherent answer to these questions. The worldview that is being given to us today does not have a sufficient answer for the questions of identity and purpose and origin and destiny. It truly doesn't have the adequate answers. But I'm here to at least make the statement that the scriptures have a more coherent and compelling answer, a better narrative, a better story from which to answer these things. They, they answer them better than the others that are out there. 
And so I want to take the time that I have today remaining to consider some of the answers to what I think is the primary, the most important question of identity from the scriptures found in the New Testament book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while he was a prisoner in the city of Rome to a church that he had pastored, that he had planted in the city of Ephesus that had a very Greco-Roman way of seeing the world. And even though they didn't have the advancement in technology and science and medicine that we do today, their mental framework, the way that they viewed the world was not so dissimilar to 21st century California culture, the way that many in our culture view the world. A very similar sort of worldview in that day. It was a very pluralistic environment. There were people worshiping all kinds of different deities and the mindset was, you worship the way you worship, we'll worship the way that we worship, you have your worldview, I have my worldview, we all just are fine, everything's good, do your own thing. So it's not so dissimilar. And Paul gives some answers to these questions here in Ephesians and these questions are answered in the Bible and by the revelation of God better than Muhammad or better than Buddha or better than Confucius or better than the Quran or the Impassides or the Vedas or any of these sacred writings. This answers it better than Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins. They're more compelling, the answers that are given here in this book about identity and purpose and origin and destiny. And the fact that the answers are more compelling is a gripping reality as to why we should take what the scriptures have to say and hold it and say, listen, this, this does have a better answer. Even though there's a lot of contention coming from other people like Richard Dawkins in our day who, who say that these things are foolish and these things are stupid. But at the end of the day, when you ask him, can you answer for us the question? Because you're proposing a worldview. You're saying, this is the philosophy by which I should live my life. So what's your answer for the question of identity? Identity. Who am I? Well, you're just another animal. Right? You're just another animal. That's the answer. Where did I come from? What's my origin? Well, random chance and mutation over billions of years. That's, that's where you came from. H how did that all come about? Well, your eyeball. It's possible that billions of years ago, some lower life form got the sun shined on it and burned a mole on it. And over billions of years and mutation and transformation, it became an eye, which is rather scary to me because I have some moles. <laughs> I'm fine with two eyes. <laughs> Origin, well, random chance mutation, billion of years, billions of years. Purpose, why am I here? Well, to perpetuate the species. You're to make sure that more animals like you come from you, which I've done a good job. We got four of those. <laughs> and that's, that's good. So, but that's my only purpose? No, no, that's not your only purpose. Well, what else? What else is my purpose, my meaning? Well, you're here to make sure that everything continues going on. And so don't use plastic bags. <laughs> because we've got to make sure it keeps going. But that's meaning, that's purpose that we're given. Identity, origin, purpose, destiny. Where am I going after this? To a funeral home. Cremation or buried. Somewhere. That's about it. Those are the answers. At the end of the day, those are the answers that the culture in which we live gives. Philosophical answers to deep, hard questions. But I would say that the Bible has a more compelling answer. And when you know who you are, and I'm going to take some time to consider this morning, our identity, 
When you know who you are, it'll transform your purpose. If you're taking notes, you could write it down like this. Your I am affects your I do. Your I am affects your I do. Your identity changes your activity. We, we all know this is the case. This was the case with Clark Kent, <laughs> right? When he finally came to the comprehension of who he truly was, he wasn't like the rest of us. He's from Krypton. And when he understood his identity, it changed his activity. He became Superman. Not just Clark Kent, Peter Parker. When he understood who he really was, his identity, he was able to change his activity. Spider-Man, my favorite, Bruce Wayne, <laughs> Batman. When he understood his true identity. I, I make light of it, but the reality is when you are able to understand your true identity, it, it changes your activity. So Ephesians chapter one, if you wouldn't mind standing with me, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. It's on page 1955 in my Bible, which is no help to you. <laughs> I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. I realize it might be slightly different than the version you are holding in your hand. There's no problem with that. Just a different variation in translation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Father, I ask that you would, in the same way Paul prays in the following verses, that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of our calling, what are the riches of your glory and your inheritance in us, what is the exceeding greatness of your power this is the very same power that you use to raise Christ from the dead, that it's in us, that we would begin to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height of your love, 
God, help us to understand these things. Help us to more fully comprehend our identity and that that would alter our activity and that, God, your light would shine in a world that is in such desperate need of your light and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Our identity affects our activity. Your I am, your identity, who you are, it alters your I do, what you do with your life. This is clear from the opening words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 when he introduces himself, when he gives a salutation saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Your I am affects your I do, not the other way around. Now, what do I mean by that? There was a French philosopher several hundred years ago by the name of René Descartes. You may not know the name René Descartes, but you know what he's most famous for, a statement, I think, therefore I am. You know that one. I think, therefore I am. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, and there's been a lot of philosophical, you know, criticism of that as well. But for most men, I think, therefore, I am is not really true. For most men, we frame our reality like this. I do, therefore, I am. Most men identify themselves by their activity. If you're a guy, you know this. If you're not, just watch guys meet for the first time. Within 30 to 45 seconds of meeting one another, after they exchange names, if they exchange names, one of the first questions that will come up is, what do you do? What do you do? The answer to that question is interesting because it always comes in the form of an identifying remark. I am an architect. I am a farmer. I am an ironworker. I am a lawyer. I am whatever. Go down the list. So for most people, most men, we identify ourselves by our activity. It is our activity that defines our identity. And yet God wants to transform that. He wants to change that. He wants it to be flip-flopped. He wants our identity to be that which defines our activity. That who we are changes how we live and what we do. That's the way he wants it to be. Now, the Apostle Paul was no different than most of us. You see, prior to him becoming a Christian, prior to him being converted, prior to him finding his true identity in Christ, and those words, in Christ, are the ways that he identifies Christians and himself. But prior to finding his identity in Christ... He identified himself by his activity, just like most men do. His name wasn't Paul. His name at that time was Saul of Tarsus. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was Jewish, like your pastor. Your pastor actually is Jewish by heritage, I think. And so he was a Jewish doctor too, a lawyer. He was a Pharisee. He describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, and he does it in such an amazing thing, amazing way. There in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, though I might also have confidence in my flesh. What he's saying, if we bring it into updated terms, we'd say it like this. I define myself by who I am. I put my trust in me. Do we meet anybody in our culture today that does that? I trust in me. 
My confidence, my trust, my loyalty is to me. I have confidence in my flesh. If anyone else thinks that they should have confidence in their flesh, I'm more so. I'm better than all those people. That's what Paul's way of viewing himself was before he met Jesus. He goes on. This is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. It's the following book after Ephesians. Philippians 3, 5 says this. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. What is Paul saying? He's saying, prior to meeting Jesus, prior to finding my identity in him, I identified myself as blameless and holy and righteous and perfect, and I was all of these things by my activity. My identity was found in my activity. And then something changed. Something dramatic to the point that Paul in the following verses of Philippians chapter 3 says, all of that I count as trash. I don't think about that anymore. That's not how I frame my identity anymore. Now I count all that as trash that I may gain him and be found in him, in Christ. I want to be in Christ. None of that stuff matters anymore. My identity has drastically changed, and it happened like this. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. Paul was on his way, Saul of Tarsus, to go to the city of Damascus, the capital of Syria, both 2,000 years ago. And, well, Syria doesn't exist anymore, but Damascus does. He was on his way to Damascus, and he was going to go and persecute followers of Jesus. And as he's approaching the city at noonday, about this time of the day, there was, as he describes it, a, a light brighter than the sun shone around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, Paul came in contact with the risen I am. And everything changed of his life. Everything from that point on completely and drastically changed. And, and as he lay there on the ground, he says, this voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul's response is classic. It's the right response. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? <laughs> now in that moment, Paul, who had formerly been the captain of his own ship, the master of his own destiny, says, here, you take over. What do you want me to do? And Jesus says to him, go into the city and it will be revealed to you what you shall do. That's the equivalent of, of us saying, you go to your room and I'll be there in a few minutes. <laughs> so for three days, he's in the city, blind, can't see anything. He's just thinking through everything. Finally, word comes to him from a prophet by the name of Ananias who comes and tells him, this is what God wants you to do. You will now be an apostle, one sent with a message to the Gentiles. So how does Paul, a couple decades later, how does he identify himself? Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's in control. I do what he says. My identity has changed. Not just the Apostle Paul, but notice the next statement in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. To the saints, that's an identification term, to the saints who are in Ephesus, very specific identification, and faithful, that's an activity word, in Christ Jesus. So you, you see, their identity precedes their activity. Now, most of us mix this up. We think our activity defines our identity. 
And too many Christians live this way. They think if I can just follow certain spiritual disciplines, if I can just keep up to certain spiritual standards, then I can be, I can gain the identity of saint. If I just do this and do this and do this. And it's different in different segments of the church. If you find yourself in a Greek Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church, their standards of practice and disciplines are different. There's sacraments that they follow. But we're not a part of that. We're in a modern evangelical Protestant church here in America and the standards of practice, the disciplines, go to church, pay a tithe, serve, read the Bible and pray. That's, that's five of them. There's more. And if I just go to church and serve, tithe, read the Bible and pray, then I might become a saint. But the reality biblically is if you're a follower of Jesus today, you've put your confidence, your trust in him. You are a saint, which alters your activity. It compels you to be faithful. You see, if the faithfulness comes before, I have to be faithful to get that, then it's always the wrong motivation. But if I am a saint already, my compulsion is to be faithful because he has saved me by grace through faith. Many of you have probably had the same experience as I have. It typically happens on a Sunday morning, and it almost always happens by coincidence. My kids are going through the roof, everything's going crazy, and I hear... A knock at the door on Saturday morning. I look through the hole, and I see some people, and I go, ooh, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. <laughs> Good morning. Kids are screaming. We are from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Anybody had that experience? Really? Or we're from the Watchtower Society. Now, I was having a conversation one time with a, some really very nice, wonderful ladies from the Watchtower Society who came to my door. And as we were wrapping up our conversation, it wasn't going anywhere, but I asked them, I said, listen, I just have one final question for you. Okay. Are you today knocking on my door because you're genuinely concerned for my eternal future? Or are you knocking on my door because you're concerned for your eternal future? And they couldn't answer that question. That's a good point. But their motivation was wrong. Why does the Christian preach the gospel and evangelize? Jesus, or Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. Because we've received his grace, so great a salvation. We are saints, therefore our activity is transformed to the saints that are in Santa Rosa and faithful in Christ Jesus. How did this come about? How did we become saints? Well, look at the very next verse, verse two. Grace. Would you circle that word in your neighbor's Bible? Just reach over. They won't mind. <laughs> they won't mind. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Paul emphasizes it again later on in chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the identity of the Christian is by the grace of God. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but Christ who dwells within me. Now notice what he just said in there. I am, identity, what I am by the grace of God, and then I labored. Identity precedes activity, but it transforms everything when you discover your true identity in Christ. Everything changes. Everything is enlightened. 
But it doesn't end there, you see, because when you become a Christian and you're in Christ, those are the descriptive words that Paul uses, the position, the identity of the Christian is in Christ. Not only do they now identify themselves in a new way, but they receive magnificent grace from Christ as one being in that position. And that's where we kind of finish in this text in Ephesians chapter one, beginning at verse three, Paul lists 10 things that are gain to the individual whose identity is in Christ. It's like this. In our state, especially where I live, we experience in a big way an influx of people coming into our nation from another nation. Many of them are coming here because they want to become citizens of our nation because we have great rights and privileges. How many of you are thankful for the rights and privileges we have in this country? It's awesome. People come here from all over the world because they want the rights and privileges and the opportunities here in the land of opportunity. And when they come here, those rights and privileges are not theirs until they become a citizen and when they become a citizen, all of a sudden, they, their identity changes. I'm an American, even though they're, they're, they were Mexican, or, or, or maybe they were Filipino, or maybe they were Chinese, but now they become an American. They, they say the pledge, they give the oath, and they are an American. And when their identity changes, they have all these rights and privileges that are theirs. And Paul in Philippians says, Christians are citizens of heaven. We have a dual citizenship. And so what are some of our rights and privileges? Well, there are 10 of them listed from verse three to verse 11 or so of Ephesians. And I don't have a lot of time to go in depth, but I just wanna run through these things. These are some of the things that are rights and privileges of ours as those that are found in Christ. He begins in verse three and he says that we are blessed, number one, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, every spiritual blessing. Not a few, not most, not 80%. Every spiritual blessing. It's not like you're working for some corporation, Google or Apple, and they give you stock options which vest over time and you have them, they're yours, but they're really not worth anything unless you've been here for 15 years. And you might get them as long as you stick around. No, not in Christ. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Not only that, he goes on to say there that we are chosen in Christ. Verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us. He handpicked us. Now, I'm so blessed that there's, it seems to be that a lot of people from this church have been sent onto the Bible college. I so appreciate that. And if you've gone to the Bible college or if you have kids in the Bible college, here's one of the things that happens. First semester Bible college. Students become experts. And any of you that ever taken like philosophy 101, you know, you're, you're an expert after three days in philosophy class. And so they become experts in something called soteriology. Well, what is that? Well, it's the, the whole thing of Calvinism, Arminianism. Did God choose us completely and sovereignly? Did we choose him by human responsibility? There's this big discussion that happens, especially first semester of Bible college. I don't really care about any of that stuff. You know, there's lots of great arguments on both sides, but what I do care about what I'm blessed about is God chose us. If you're a Christian, the Bible says he chose us. Not only did he choose us, but he predestined us. Third thing, he predestined us. He gave us a destiny beforehand. And everybody's trying to figure out what's our destiny. I got to figure out what's my destiny. I am your density. If you watch Back to the Future, you know what that is. (laughs) Destiny. He predestined us to what? Well, fourth thing, to adoption. He predestined us to adopt us into his family. Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. 
to himself. Now notice this, according to the good pleasure of his will. No one twisted his arm and said, you will adopt those ones. But it was his good pleasure to adopt you into his family. It brought him joy to make you a part of his family. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What's that mean? When he adopted you and me into his family, it brings glory to how gracious he is, right? Look around. Yes, you go, yes, some of you needed a lot of grace to be adopted into this family. In Ephesians 3.10, it says that the angels are looking at the church, us, and they're in bewilderment, amazed. And they're going, God, you're really gracious. To the praise of the glory of his grace, he predestined and adopted us. How did he do this? Well, he redeemed us. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. He bought us, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of his son. He redeemed us, purchased us, and then he forgave us the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And it takes so much grace to forgive us past, present, future sins. We've been given every spiritual blessing, chosen, predestined, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven. He goes on. Verse eight, which he made to abound towards us. What did he make to abound to us? The riches of his grace. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse nine, he has given us revelation. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, his purpose. He revealed it to us. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, verse 10, of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are in earth, in him. So he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, chosen us, predestined us, adopted us, accepted us, redeemed us, forgiven us. He's given us revelation. He's given us an eternal future. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Number 10, he's given us an inheritance which is incorruptible, it fades not away. It's imperishable. All these things are ours in Christ. These are afforded us as citizens of heaven. Every spiritual blessing, chosen, predestined, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, given revelation, given an eternal future, given inheritance. How did we get this? Well, look at verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, in whom also you trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. <sighs> How did we receive this? Well, by grace through faith, as we believed. We put our confidence and our trust in him in the gospel, the good news of our salvation, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of the promise like a down payment, and he'll make good on it. He'll make good on it. And so the question is, is this your identity? Is this your I am? Have you found your identity, your true identity in Christ, or are you still trying to make an identity for yourself? You're still trying to figure it out on your own. Today, if you're a Christian, this is your identity. You are a saint May that be the motivation for your faithfulness. But if you're not a Christian today, I encourage you to put your trust and your confidence in Jesus Christ for salvation. 
You see, when you understand your true identity in Christ, you realize that you were, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were once in opposition, an enemy of God. You were once in past times under his wrath, a child of disobedience, but you are now by grace through faith been given new life. You are in Christ. How did that happen? God, Ephesians two, verse four, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were past, dead, and trespassed and sins, he made us alive. By grace, you've been saved. And you will be, what is your destiny? Ephesians chapter two, verse seven makes it very clear that in the ages to come, he might show to you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, our destiny is he's gonna be revealing the greatness of his grace and his riches towards us. How does all this come to be? For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And what is our purpose? Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And so, as I said, the Bible presents a far more compelling and coherent answer to the iPod questions. Identity, purpose, origin, and destiny than the narrative that has been given, us, given to us today in our world. The narrative that says, how did we get here? Evolution over billions of years through random chance of mutation. Where did all that stuff come from before? We don't know. Where are we going? Nowhere. What's my purpose? Save the world, get rid of global warming, drive a, tor uh, drive a Tesla, reduce your carbon footprint, don't use plastic bags. <laughs> Make babies, have more kids. That, that's it, that's all there is. Find meaning for yourself, enjoy pleasure, that's about it. Who am I? Just another animal. Where am I going? Don't know. No answer. The Bible, although considered by some to be pre-modern thinking, presents a better and more compelling answer to the question. And for me, that's enough. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that you would apply this to our lives and that you would use it to transform our day today and this week. And God, help us to extend your glorious grace to those that are outside these doors because this city, this town, Santa Rosa, this county, Sonoma, this whole area, the Bay Area, needs your grace. And Lord, we who are the recipients of great grace, help us to extend it graciously. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.